Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer it with a grain offering and its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak, with, to, speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. Thank you, Kim. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love to us, for the privilege we have today to come together as your people, to worship you in spirit and in truth, fellowship together, to open your word together, and we thank you for revealing yourself as the great God that you are and the great saving God that you are through sending your son Jesus. And we ask that you would be pleased with our coming together today, that we will glorify you in our hearts, and we ask your blessing on our time together that we would bring glory to Jesus, our Savior, in whose name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to see everyone. I'm Stephen Carlson. I'm one of the elders here at Redeemer Church, and our pastor, Jamie Mosley, and his family are all taking a mini vacation. Uh, he called me early in the week and asked me if I would pinch hit for him. And so... I decided to kind of pick up a theme that we've been seeing a little bit in the book of Exodus. Um, for those of you who are new to Redeemer, we uh, usually go through a book of the Bible, and Jamie began almost a year ago in the book of Exodus. And uh, you may have noticed that uh, the passage that Kim just read is um, part of the passage that was read last week. So I'm going to be actually piggyback off of that because it contains... Uh, one of the many references to God's glory in the book of Exodus. Uh, glory is a very prominent theme in the Bible. By my count, it's over 500 times. And it doesn't occur very often in the book of Genesis, but Exodus begins to greatly emphasize the glory of God, and it permeates the rest of the Bible. And so I'd like to that to be our topic. I had a professor of... Uh, Greek, who said, uh, you know, greatly emphasized preaching verse by verse. And he said, you could preach a topical sermon once every five years and then promptly ask God to forgive you. <laughs> but I think, I hope that's a bit of hyperbole because that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to preach a topical sermon. And so we're going to be in various passages today. Um, and let's pick up where we just read. I'd like to make a couple points here. Uh, first of all, the word glory is connected time and time again to God's holiness. And that, in turn, both are connected to the divine name, Yahweh, the Lord, in all caps in your English Bible. And I want you to notice that all three are right here in this passage. Look again 
with me, picking up in verse 43. I'm going to have to talk to the other elders about buying a taller podium. <laughs> verse 43. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and they shall be sanctified by my glory. The word holy is an adjective that occurs throughout both the Old and New Testament. And when you see the word sanctified or the word consecrate, that's simply the verb form of the word holy. They, the idea is to be set apart, to be unique. God is absolutely holy. There is no one and nothing like him in the universe. And so that's the emphasis when the Bible talks about God's holiness. Our holiness, our set-apartness comes from him, but his is inherent in who he is as the eternal God. Now, I realize we're, we're jumping into some pretty deep things today, but God wants us to do that because he's a deep God. He's an infinite God, and he calls on us to know him. I was in a theology class, and a professor was lecturing on some subject in theology, and one of the students raised his hand and said, Dr. Barnard, I don't understand what you're saying. Everything you're saying is going over my head. And he was British, and he leaned over and said, well, young man, I suggest that you stand on your tiptoes. So we're all going to be standing on our tiptoes this morning. Notice what God says here again. It will be sanctified, made holy, set apart by my glory. So let's talk about those two terms first of all. The word holy refers to all that God is. It isn't just one of God's attributes. It refers to all of God's attributes at the same time. That's the catchword the Jewish people used for all that God is. And you can see in Psalm 99, three times, it says, Yahweh is holy, Yahweh is holy, Yahweh is holy. And it gives a list of four or five other attributes of God to demonstrate what he's talking about. What makes God holy? What is so unique about him? Well, everything. Everything about God is also infinite. He is an infinite being. He has no beginning. He has always existed. He has infinite power, omnipotence. He has infinite knowledge, omniscience. And you know what the definition of omniscience is? God knows all things, actual and possible, and has always known all of them. No new thought ever enters the mind of God. He's never caught by surprise. He doesn't ever have to figure things out. That's a guy worth worshiping, isn't it? He is omnipresent. He is everywhere, and everywhere God is, all of God is there. And I'm not just talking about the physical universe. God exists in an infinite metaphysical reality. It extends infinitely, 
and our universe is only a small, tiny part of that. Isaiah says that when God measures the heavens that he created, it's a span. And a span in the ancient world was from your pinky to your thumb. How big is the universe? God says, oh, it's about that big. God is all wise, omnisapient. He never makes mistakes. And God often imparts some of that holiness to us so that we can share in it. He's love. He's mercy. He's faithful. He's forgiving. He's also wrath. He's a God who judges sin. And if you, this, this might boggle your mind. Think of all those sins that have committed, been committed in human history. Every one of them will be accounted for. Either in judgment or through the death of Jesus. So, I've already jumped over into my first point. Is it up there? Yeah. Um, point number one, then, is glory defined. Here's what glory is. Glory is a physical, visible manifestation of God's holiness. In other words, when God talks about his glory, he is letting you see his holiness. And it is many times closely connected to his personal presence. But what we've already said, if God's presence is there, all of God is there. God is just as much present in this room and in a room in China, and then Pluto, which is not even any longer a planet, apparently, and in another galaxy, and in the far reaches of the universe. And remember this, regardless of what the scientists out there tell you, the universe is not infinite. Only God is infinite. He created a finite universe that is so big, we can't find the end of it. That's God's glory. Now, as we've seen <clears throat> throughout the book of Exodus, God is going to great lengths at Mount Sinai to tell his people how they can have a relationship with him, how to have access to him, so to speak. And he has promised that he's going to make them holy, set them apart, sanctify them by dwelling in their midst. And a large part of the latter book of the, part of the book of Exodus is about how God does that particularly as the section we're in now is on the building of the tabernacle. From chapters 25 to 40, it's all about building the tabernacle. He tells them what to do, and then they do it, although it is interrupted by the golden calf incident. We'll, we'll look at briefly in a moment. How do you approach an infinite God? You do it on his terms. You do it the way he says you must do it. Any other attempt is robbing God of his glory, trying to do things our way instead of his. If this is how we glorify God. This is what it means to glorify God, to give him his due, to recognize who he is, understand his holiness, and thank him for it. Thank him for all of those things that he has given us as a holy God. Redemption, forgiveness, eternal life, the indwelling spirit. 
there's a, another concept related to this, and that's the verb, the idea of praise. We, when we come together, what are we doing? And why are we doing it? We're doing it because God deserves our praise and our glorification of him. Glorification, the idea of glorifying God has to do with recognizing who God is, his holiness, and what he has done. And we praise him for that. Praise is primarily linked to thanking God for what we've seen him do, and glory is thanking God for who he is. Although there's clearly some overlap there as well. You know, we don't, we don't really come to church to have fun. If you're a believer, I hope it's fun. Like I also said a minute ago, I love coming here, fellowshipping with God's people, hearing, hearing y'all sing. I don't sing very much. The Bible says to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. My singing is not joyful. So I also have throat problems. But this is why we're here, to bring glory to God, to see God for who he is. And to see how he has revealed himself, that's his glory. We get to see and experience some of his holiness. And so I'd like to look at a couple other passages. We'll go into part two here. Glory in the Old Testament. There are several places where glory has already occurred up to this point, And we're going to look at a couple more. But I want to show you again in verse... 43, there in the tabernacle that they are going to build, it shall be sanctified by my glory. What makes the tabernacle so special? Because God's presence is there. What made the burning bush so special? Because God's presence was there. You know, when God left, so to speak, and the bush was no longer burning, it was no longer a holy place. God says, Moses, take your shoes off. You're in holy ground. But when God's presence was removed, it wasn't holy ground anymore. If we could find the burning bush, don't, don't need to take shoes off. God's manifested presence is no longer there. Because when we talk about God being omnipresent, I mean, you've heard people say, I could feel God's presence. What do they mean by that? God's everywhere. Of course he's there. Solomon said, even if I could go down to hell, you'd be there. Actually, he said, Sheol. Same idea. God is everywhere, but he doesn't always manifest his presence everywhere. In fact, that's rare. He says, I will be with you where two or three are gathered in my name. I will be with you. That's a promise from Jesus. And in the Old Testament, it was often very quite visible. And what, G, what uh, God is telling Moses here is, when the tabernacle is finished, I will manifest my glory there. And what happens at the end of the book of Exodus? Flip over there for a moment. Chapter 40. This passage kind of gives me chill bumps every time I read it. The tabernacle is finished. 
And this is what the Israelites see. Beginning in verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. What a sight that must have been for that generation of Israelites. This is the cloud of, had um, followed them, pillar of fire during the night that led them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai. And now they see it coming down and resting inside the tabernacle. You see, the tabernacle was God's home among them. That's where he was going to live. You live in your house. Now he has a house. He's going to live there among them. And he has now occupied his house. God was with them. And one of the saddest verses in the Old Testament occurs in Ezekiel, Ichabod. The word kavod is the Hebrew word for glory. Ichabod means the glory is gone. They had so fallen into wickedness and had broken the covenant that God made with them on Mount Sinai so many times God says, I'm out of here, and I'm going to turn you over to your enemies. Which is what happened when the Babylonians came and took them into captivity. But before we move out of Exodus, I want to look very briefly at Exodus 33 as well. 33 and 34. This is at the very end of chapter 33. This is in the aftermath of the burning book, excuse me, the golden calf incident. And you know this story well. Jamie will be getting to it very shortly. But because of the prominence of the concept of glory here, I want to uh, point out a few things. You know, Moses was on Mount Sinai. The children of Israel talked Aaron into making a golden calf, and then Moses came down and destroyed it. Which, by the way, is the first instance in human history of cow tipping. You know. I couldn't resist. I mean... You don't get an opportunity to use that one very often. <laughs> Moses is terrified that in the aftermath of the golden calf incident, God's not going to be with them anymore. What did he just see? God killed 3,000 people. And most, most likely then, that means that those were the main instigators and worshipers of the golden calf. He spared the life of the high priest, Aaron, but he wiped the rest of them out. And Moses was worried, is he, is he abandoning us? And so notice what Moses does here. Verse 17, this is Exodus 33, 17. And Yahweh said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do for you, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and you know me by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. Boy, he didn't want much, did he? Show, just show me your glory. <laughs> but God didn't rebuke him for that. In fact, God did what he asked. Notice how he puts it. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. What does that mean? That's just another way of referring to the holiness of God, that he is going to let his being move through 
briefly so Moses could catch a passing glimpse of it. See, we could never see God in all his footness. We are, infinite. we are finite. We cannot see or experience or absorb the infinite. But the infinite God has condescended to show you some of his holiness. That is glory. Moses is asking God, show me your presence again. God says, I will. In fact, you will know that it's me because I'm going to call my own name and I'm going to describe myself. See, there's that element of glory. Because when God's presence is there, all of God is there. Notice chapter 34 then. This is what God says. He told him, Moses, you can't see all of my glory or you'll die. So I'm going to put you in this, the cleft of the rock. Boy, I sang that song many, many times growing up. I had no idea what it started. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock and covered me there with his hand. And that will be the only time you ever hear me sing. And I finally read this passage. That's what it was talking about. I'm going to, still up on Mount Sinai. Moses, I'm going to put you in the cleft of this rock and I'm going to pass by but I'm not going to let you look at me until I'm almost gone because you can't take any more than that. And so he saw God's glory as it faded away because that's all he could handle. And after God did that, here's what he says, chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is the way God described himself. And this became a formula throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Time and time again, you run into the, this version or a briefer version of it all the way through the Minor Prophets. Remember the story about Jonah? Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Proclaim who I am to the Ninevites, to the Assyrians. That was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Israel's most hated enemy at the time. Jonah said, forget that, and he went in the exact opposite direction. God called a whale to swallow him. He says, okay, I'll go. And when he got there, and told them about the one true God, they repented. And Jonah says, I knew this was going to happen. Because you're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness. He didn't want that to happen. He wanted them to, him to zap the Assyrians. And that was 800 years after Moses' experience here. This is how Israel was to remember who God is. God enumerates several of his attributes here for Moses. This is what it means to have God present. All of God is there. He's a forgiving God, a gracious. Aren't you glad he is slow to anger? You would have been judged immediately upon your first sin and never had a chance to repent and trust in Jesus if he were not slow to anger. Psalm 29, 
we're going to move on a little bit beyond Exodus. Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. You have all three there again. Glory, holiness, Yahweh. This is what the psalmist is calling on God's people to do. This is why we're here. To see and experience together the love and mercy and graciousness and power of redemption in Christ Jesus that God has provided. That is how we give God's glory. That's how we glorify God, is to constantly acknowledge these things. We come together every Sunday to do this corporately, but that's supposed to be the theme of our lives. You glorify God every time, every day, you do something because you know that's what God wants you to do. Or you refrain from doing something because you got, know God doesn't want you to do it. That brings God glory. That means you are taking him seriously in your life. In fact, the word glory actually comes from a root that means to be heavy, to have weight. You know, he, he carries a lot of weight in that corporation. He's important. He's significant. That's the idea. God is significant. God is important to you. And you demonstrate that because you live your life according to what he has revealed he wants you to do. That's how we glorify him. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. Did you, did you know that the heavens could talk? What does that mean? It means that when you look into the heavens, you should see the glory. That is the power, the majesty, the wisdom of an infinite God. And one of the most horrible ironies today is that the scientific community looks into those same heavens and comes up with a big bang theory and denies that God exists. It's a lie straight from the left side of hell. The left side of hell is worse than the right side of hell in case you didn't know that. <laughs> it's in there somewhere. You know, that, uh, that'll be a nice segue to part three, point number three, glory in the New Testament. Go to Romans 1 with me. Paul piggybacks on what the psalmist said there. And I just realized I missed, I missed a verse. Let me go, just go ahead and quote it. Isaiah 6.3. Isaiah has a vision of God in the temple. And he is just overwhelmed. These angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And there it is again. Holy, Yahweh, glory. How is the earth full of his glory? The same way the heavens are. Look at what's on our planet. See once again the wisdom and power 
of the God who created it, including humanity created in his image and likeness. What happens to those who deny this? They're robbing God of his glory. This is essentially what Paul says in Romans 1. Look in um, Romans 1, beginning in verse... Well, I had it written down. Where is it? Verse 14. I'm sorry, 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. And the way that was done in the ancient world was to come up with all these gods and goddesses that replaced the one true God. And they worshiped creatures. They worshiped things that they themselves created. In fact, Isaiah refers to this. He says, you go outside and you cut down a tree and you use one of them, part of the tree for firewood and the other one, you create a God out of it. Creating your own God? Notice what Paul says here, the glory of the immortal God. God is not susceptible to death. You know, the people that started the God is dead movement, they're dead. God's not. And that was a painful reality for them. Drop down to verse um, 7. Well, I've got to look again. Look at verse 25. And I don't know any better way to describe Big Bang evolution theory than this. I never pass up an opportunity to criticize Big Bang evolution. And the Bible gives us plenty of opportunities. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is why the glory of God is so important. The glory of God refers to the way he has revealed his holiness. And if you reject that, you're accepting a lie, and you're going to die and go to hell. It's that simple. A few years ago, the renowned physicist and Nobel Prize winner, Stephen Hawking, died. And you could read online all these accolades about him. And some of them said, R.I.P., rest in peace. That's a cruel joke. He is not resting in peace. He was an atheist. And his entire life's work was to prove Big Bang evolution theory and that God did not exist. You could say the same thing about Carl Sagan, who's been dead 22 years. The moment they died was a painful reality. Oops, I missed that one. 
and it cannot be reversed. Let's move on. Romans 3.23. Why does Paul say, for all his sin and fall short of the glory of God? Maybe you understand that now. You'd think he'd say God's righteous standard. That's the, that's the idea. But he used the glory of God has revealed himself. And every single human being, except Jesus alone, has fallen way short. In fact, that's the present tense. Keeps on falling short of the glory of God. It never stops. Unless you come to faith in Jesus. Because that's the next thing Paul says. We're justified by faith in Jesus' blood. That's the only thing that allows us to really enjoy the glory of God because on our own, we're going to fall way short. You can't glorify God unless you glorify Jesus first. People try to get God, get to God on their own. All kinds of religions try to find ways to lead you to God, but ignore Jesus. And Jesus says in John 5, you can't honor the Father unless you honor me first. Remember, Jesus is the eternal Son of God, equal with the Father in essence. God is not going to forgive anyone who ignores his Son. Notice how God accomplished this. John 1.14. This is, this is the Christmas story in John. Four words, the word became flesh. And the rest of it, John says, and we beheld his glory. What kind of glory did Jesus bring into the world? The glory as of the only unique son of the father, full of grace and truth. God's manifestation of who he is, his holiness, was more powerfully seen in the coming of Jesus. Because he accomplished the righteous standard that God demanded for sin to be paid for in his perfect sinless life and his vicarious death. That means he died for you and me. So that God's wrath fell on him instead of those who come to faith in Jesus. Also, Colossians 1, 27 and 28, Paul refers to the believer. He says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here Paul is talking about future glory, and that will actually be a nice transition to point number four, future glory. We enjoy the glory of God now, but God's got more in store for us. Christ dwelling in us who know Jesus by faith is the hope of the glory that he is, has out there waiting for us. So remember, since God is an eternal being, he's already there. It's absolutely certain it's going to happen because he's already there, and his power is going to guarantee that when we catch up with him, it's going to happen. So what glory is he talking about? Look in Revelation. You can tell I'm getting toward the end now, right? We're in the last book of the Bible. 
Revelation 4. <clears throat> we saw holy, holy, holy in Isaiah 6, 3. There's only one other place that occurs. It's right here. Revelation 4, 14, uh, excuse me, verse 8. And the four living creatures, those are angels, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, they all worship him. Notice again, the name of God, the glory of God, the holy God. This is what the angels do. These angels say this constantly. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's their only job. They say this over and over. How in the world do we have access to a God like that? Only through Jesus. Only by faith in him. All those barriers that the tabernacle and eventually the temple, remember after Solomon built the temple, the glory of God departed into the, I mean, uh, descended into the temple as well. Deja vu. Going, reminiscent of Exodus 40 when it entered the tabernacle. But God has something so much greater for us in store. When we talk about going to heaven, remember, that's just a temporary situation. You know, I've been to my share of funerals. My mom's recently, about six weeks ago. I've preached at several of them, including my mom's and my dad's. My wife's mother, my best friend, 18 years ago, standing right at the graveside. How do you get through that? Because I knew where they were. And I knew this wasn't the end. The hope, that is, the confident expectation of a future event. That's what that means in the New Testament, the word hope. There's no doubt about it. He has it already prepared for us. And what is it? Look in chapter 21. Revelation 21. While you're flipping over there, I'd like to read something Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. First Timothy 6, verses 14 and 15 and 16. At the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will display at the proper time. God, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. That's the infinite God. In that infinite metaphysical reality where God dwells, it's unapproachable light. We can never experience or see it, but he's going to give us something for all eternity to enjoy the glory that is a part of that infinite holiness. Notice Revelation 21, verses 22 and 23. And I saw no temple in the city. This is the New Jerusalem. 
This is the new heavens and new earth. This is the eternal state. The resurrection has already occurred. We're there experiencing God in his fullness as much as we finite beings can absorb. Notice what he does. For the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, the Redeemer. Jesus himself, with the nail prints in his hands still, and the wound in his side still. And remember, Jesus is still a man. His, the incarnation, when he became a human being, was not a temporary arrangement. He didn't die, come back from the dead, and say, boy, am I glad that's over, and get rid of his humanity. No. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. 30 years after the resurrection, he had already ascended into heaven. He is still and forever a man because we still need him to be our mediator and intercessor, and he will bear the marks on the cross for all eternity for us. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He is our temple. And God the Father is going to manifest his presence too. How? And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And then when God creates the new heavens and the earth, there's not going to be a sun, there's not going to be a moon. God himself is going to illuminate the entire physical universe with his presence. But this is for the redeemed. This is for only, only for those who know Jesus. There's another horrible reality awaiting those who reject the gospel. And I know that in a crowd this size, there's probably several who have not come to faith in Jesus yet. And that's what we want to urge. Don't listen to the lies of the scientific community who say God doesn't exist because they proved it. It's a lie. Jesus came and died and came back from the dead so you can experience God's holiness, his love, his grace, and forgiveness forever.